Hey everyone, this is Jose Nino again, bringing you another episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, I'm joined with a special guest for the first interview of this podcast series. If you're plugged into the Austrian economic scene, you're probably well acquainted with my guest. Jeff Deist is currently the president of the Mises Institute. He was former Congressman Ron Paul's chief of staff and has an extensive career as a tax attorney advising private equity clients on mergers and acquisitions. In my humble opinion, Jeff is the most cogent proponent for political decentralization, ordered liberty, and a market-based society in this space, especially in this time of great political and economic chaos. So how is everything going, Jeff? Hey, Jose, it's great to talk to you. All right, let's just get down to business. As someone who, like myself, got into this whole political scene via Ron Paul and Pat Buchanan, like well over a decade ago, I do have like some perspective on how things have unfolded in the liberty space. And there have been some changes, obviously, like both positive and negative mm -hmm. that I've picked up on. What would you say has changed within the so-called libertarian movement from Ron Paul's first presidential run under the Republican banner in 2008 until the very present? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, 2008 is almost 15 years ago now. And in 2020 years, that might as well be 150 years because in many ways, Ron's two campaigns in 08 and 2012 were reactionary with respect to the W. Bush administration, right? That's when we got 9-11. We got two wars of choice in Afghanistan and Iraq. We got the Patriot Act and Department of Homeland Security and NSA spying and, you know, unlawful detentions and renditions and waterboarding and all that kind of stuff happening. We got the Medicare Part D drug bill, which was entirely fascist. We got the No Child Left Behind bill, which was one of Ted Kennedy's last injuries to the country before he died. You know, it was really a fascist era when the pace of change was accelerating. And so people like Lou Rockwell and the Mises Institute were correctly bashing the Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, Ashcroft, John Yoo, unitary executive, neocon dominance at the time. That's, again, a long time ago. And then the intervening Obama years came along, and then Trump came along, which nobody really could have predicted. And so the oxygen in the room has really changed since then. And so overwhelmingly today, the enemy is the left. Libertarians are very dopey about this. They're wrong about this. They uh, go on and on. Well, we're neither left nor right and yada, yada. It's, it's just, and it's just a failure to understand or, or have, I guess, the uh, integrity to admit what's in front of our faces, which is that the real authoritarians are not some KKK skinhead running around in the woods somewhere in Mississippi, you know, half of whom are feds or whatever. <laughs> the threat yes. is that woke junior high teacher in your own kid's junior high, who would gladly put people in jail for all kinds of things, who would gladly nationalize whole industries, who would gladly create hate speech laws, who would gladly have uh, deeply progressive income tax rates. You know, these are the real authoritarians. They are the Hillary voters of the world. You know, so the landscape's changed. And 
Trump changed it. Trump really accelerated, I think. You know, was there a deep division in the country which Trump revealed? Or was there a deep division in the country which Trump accelerated or caused? I don't know. That's, that's a tough question to answer. But I think right now, libertarianism, which I would consider a bastardized 21st century version of decent liberalism, doesn't have an answer for illiberalism. And so that's the problem. That's, that's the state of, of uh, movement libertarianism today, in my view. Yeah, those are actually pretty good points because I do see a lot of libertarians kind of like misidentify the enemy and not understand that like politics is not like a static type of process. It changes a lot and there's like new trends in that and you have to like adapt to that or else you basically will get dominated to put it bluntly. Now, I do think that you you have very unique perspectives on how to like move forward towards like a more like free market or private property type of society because you're like typical libertarian or libertarian adjacent individual will say like just run under the libertarian party or infiltrate the Republican party and build like a coalition of like liberty minded reps at the state and federal level to bring about political change. I will admit that I've actually done both strategies in the past, and I found actually the latter to be slightly more effective, though I would emphasize that it was much more effective at the state level. You, on the other hand, have kind of put forward a more unique approach to addressing the various political problems of our time. You've called actually for a soft secession in several of your speeches and articles, What does that entire process entail? Well, I think it's already happening and it's COVID has certainly accelerated it. But the reason I like to use the term soft secession is there are some real problems with outright secession. And by outright secession, I mean either peaceably or not, a particular federal state, the United States of America, breaks up into two or more separate political entities, and those entities form entirely new governments unto themselves. So like the former Yugoslavia, that was a real secessionary breakup of the country. It's now six or seven truly sovereign, unique individual countries. So that's one form of secession whereby the United States actually breaks up into two or more pieces. Now, there are some very thorny and difficult problems with that. Very authority. Yes. National debt, for example, federal entitlements like Social Security and Medicare, nuclear weapons, federal land, the U.S. federal military and all of its far-flung bases. I mean, these are not the easiest things to divvy up politically, to put it mildly. So those are tough problems. But I think what's staring us in the face is that there are a whole host of lesser issues that could be ameliorated at the state and local level without all this disharmony and strife, things like abortion and gun control and school curricula and that sort of thing, where we've got people at each other's throats because we federalized and centralized everything over the 20th century, either under the auspices of the unitary executive, which both the Republicans and Democrats wanted when they had the presidency, by the way. And there's a lot of really bullshit pseudo legalese surrounding that. And then also the Supreme Court, which has become a super legislature unto itself. And so oftentimes, not even nine, but just five, a majority of nine justices are making these overwhelming decisions for 330 million people. So this is clearly a recipe for disaster. And during COVID, we saw this beautiful 
sort of sniping between governors. We saw radically different approaches to mask mandates and vaccines and shutting down businesses and schools and churches and that sort of thing. And you would expect that. Again, a country, Jose, of 330 million people, Manhattan is very, very dense. They may have different rules during a flu outbreak there than you have in sparsely populated Wyoming, right? It just stands to reason. So we had all these different approaches. We had different governors sort of getting mad at each other. And more, most importantly, probably, we had a bunch of people voting with their feet. And this was already happening before COVID, but man, did it speed up. We, people were leaving California. They were leaving New York. They were leaving New Jersey. And they were leaving Illinois in particular. And they were going to places like Texas and Idaho. Poor Boise has been overrun they were going to Nashville, Tennessee, and they were going to Florida. So, you know, this is a form of soft secession unto itself. People are organizing nations within a nation of sorts. So I find that fascinating. I find it healthy. I hope people continue to sort of think of themselves like I'm now a Floridian. You know, I moved to Florida because I like DeSantis or whatever, or because I wanted to have my restaurant that's open without masks, you know, and, and I'm a Californian, you know, I don't believe in these crazy abortion restrictions like Mississippi or Texas. And I think we ought to have mask mandates. And I think we ought to have vaccine passports to go into a restaurant. I, I want to live in Manhattan because I agree with these things. We're the sensible people of science, you know, that sort of thing. I think it's really very healthy because it's showing us the way forward. And as far as I can tell, it's the only way forward. I don't have great ideas about national divorce or what Angelo Cotevilla, before he died, called a cold civil war, right? I mean, anything's preferable to war, outright war, other than subjugation. And so when people sort of jokingly say, oh, you know, you want there to be another civil war, well, no. <laughs> That's the last thing we want. It was the most horrific episode in U.S. history by orders of magnitude. So that's the last thing we want. We're, we're specifically talking about how to avoid that. And I'm not sure if social media has made us more open in our animosities between the various groups in the United States, political groups more than anything, or if that animosity was always there and social media makes us aware of it. Again, I don't necessarily know, but it's there and now we're aware of it. So the question becomes, what are we going to do? Yeah, all good points. Yeah, I think social media definitely exacerbates a lot of that. But I think these problems have been boiling over for decades. I tend to be of the opinion that the civil rights revolution and those like subsequent interventions have really like sowed the seeds for a lot of like this disarray. And now it's just manifesting itself in its kind of like final form. And I think that we are kind of in a Rubicon moment where there's like no going back. You're not going back to like the 1950s or any idyllic period in American history. So we're just going to have to like muddle through this. Well, actually touching on this general polarization, there is like, I see a generalized like pessimism across like the political spectrum in like the US from your typical like liberals who are convinced like the US is a irredeemably racist country to like conservatives who think we are seconds away from a total Marxist takeover. Even your average libertarian thinks we're about to enter a 1984 or brave new world dystopia. 
Though I think common to all these people that think that we're like doomed, there is like a total distrust in governing institutions in one shape or form. So in in effect, you do see like partisans who are out of political power viewing their rivals that are in power almost as like an occupying force, if you will. All these things considered, do you think that the regime in the U.S. now has a legitimacy crisis on its hands? Yes, it absolutely does. And that, again, that's a beautiful thing. I mean, we've, we've had multiple revolutions in this country. We think of having the, the American Revolution in colonial times against the British, but we've had quiet revolutions in this country, at least three or four or five of them. Certainly, Lincoln and the Civil War represented one. The Progressive Era, the Sherman Antitrust Act era of the late 1800s represented one. Woodrow Wilson represented one. The New Deal era with FDR represented one. LBJ's Great Society represented one. I would argue that the Bush-Ashcroft neoconservative era represented a quiet revolution. And so Garrett Garrett, the famous journalist in the first half of the 20th century, was an old right journalist who wrote, started a lot of literary journals. Very underrated figure. Yeah. He says, you know, the revolution takes place within the form. So what that means is we still have these trappings. We still have the Supreme Court. We still have Congress. We still have a president. But, you know, we still have the churches we go to. We still have the colleges that our kids attend. We still have the city council operating as dust. So we have all these forms of these things, but the substance of what they do is radically changed. And it would be something that our great-grandparents couldn't even recognize or understand, right? They would have said, what do you mean the Supreme Court decided X about abortion, right? That it, would, it would just never have occurred to them, that sort of thing. So we've had all these revolutions, but at some point when you beat up on the form enough, you know, it collapses. And so, I mean, if you look at things that a lot of Americans used to trust, like the Atlantic or the New York <laughs> Times, <laughs> yeah. the FBI, the CIA, the U.S. military, we now know that they're pretty happy about running out a lot of anti-vaxxers and having a new woke military force. You know, there's all these institutions. The Catholic Church has had some pretty significant problems. You know, there's not a lot, you know, the only people that really who are forming culture in country clubs or the Elks Club or, you know, fraternal order police, that sort of thing tends to be older people. So we really have a younger cohort below 30, let's say Generation Z, which is pretty alienated, pretty isolated, pretty angry. And as Tucker Carlson puts it, they feel like someone's pulled the ladder up, that they're not going to be able to get on that first rung of the economic ladder here in the United States. So it's, you know, it's a tough time and uh, it's probably going to stay that way, but we're not going to get past it, Jose, by lying to ourselves about the state of these institutions. We have to jettison some of them altogether, good riddance. Yes. We have to save some of them, rebuild them, and we have to create some new ones. I mean, that's the reality. Oh, yeah. Sugarcoating the stuff does not do us any favors at the end of the day. Like, let's be real. There's going to have to be like a pretty sober assessment, reassessment, if you will, of a lot of like, a lot of stuff that has really deteriorated or even has gotten us to this putrid state of affairs. Now, this is a bit inside baseball, but I've noticed in some libertarian circles now, especially with the COVID-19 lockdowns and just the attendant micromanagement of like pretty much all human affairs since this 
entire manufactured crisis <laughs> came about. I've just noticed this desire for a pretty significant minority of libertarian and right-leaning people to like flee the country. And I really don't blame them in some ways because you are seeing for the first time like a legitimate decline in living standards and a breakdown in public order. So yeah, I actually don't blame them. I have actually lived abroad, though I'm not that gung-ho about living abroad like long-term as a long-term plan, but I do get the sentiment still. As for you, would leaving the country ever cross your mind? And if so, where would you go? Yes, it absolutely would. Uh, I would go to Switzerland if they'd have me. They have some big problems in Switzerland. They have wokeness and they have a, a central bank, which is increasingly getting worse and worse and emulating ours. But they're not likely to get themselves involved in any kind of NATO yeah. or uh, other foreign interventions. They're well protected by mountains. And also, you know, it's a country of 8 million people and they take the subsidiarity principle very seriously, which means that at your local communal town level, there's an, an awful lot of political power, then you can move within communes if you don't like it. So it's very hard to get a Swiss passport. But, you know, I've been reading Doug Casey for years and years and years, and I certainly understand people who do want to leave. I'm just not so sure that there's any place else that's much freer than the United States. I mean, I think there are places that are freer, but there's some problems with leaving for most people, of course, whether that's language, mm -hmm. they don't have enough money to leave, you know, to, to make it, they don't have the, the skills or whatever to, to make an income in the new country. And, you know, it's not like the rest of the world is just handing out passports. The more desirable countries usually have some entrance requirements. Maybe you have to bring a certain amount of capital, a certain amount of jobs, open a business or something. But yeah, I'm not, I, would, I don't blame anybody for it. I don't view them as like they're cutting and running and that they owe some obligation to the United States. I don't. I certainly don't view it that way, but I just, other than Switzerland, I'm not sure that there's any place I would really want to go. Yeah. Switzerland's interesting because I recently saw something, I think like they voted for like some type of like vax passport thing, but it is like a really unique country in how it's very decentralized. It has a interesting compulsory military thing and it's geographically secure, which helps it a lot in terms of avoiding a lot of like the fratricidial conflict that we saw Europe engage in in World War One, World War Two, And it, it's smart that it's also not part of NATO, which to me is just basically a battering ram against Russia. But yeah, like that is, it is an outlier in like Liechtenstein as well. Like those countries are very much outliers in this world of like really bloated nation states. So yeah, we are definitely like in uncharted waters in U.S. history. And I think like pretty much almost like I'd say even like across the political spectrum, you'll have people in agreement about that, though. You're, you're obviously going to see people always drawing historical parallels to try to predict how our future is going to pan out. You see like people comparing the present situation to antebellum USA during the 1850s or interwar Europe during the 1930s or even like the civil rights revolution of the 60s and the subsequent economic malaise of the 1970s. Do you see any historical parallels with these eras or are we heading into just something completely different? Yeah, it's hard to say. Amity Schley is the historian. She focuses on Calvin Coolidge. She's written a, a great Coolidge bio. She says that the era we're in right now is more like the 60s than the 30s 
In other words, it's going to be led by the Supreme Court in terms of the sweeping revolutions, social, sexual, economic, whatever they might be. So I think that's an interesting point because, you know, the 60s and 70s were really pretty violent in this country. There were a lot of assassinations. There were a lot of riots in cities. There were riots at uh, conventions, at the Democratic Convention, I guess, in 68. Yep. You know, so this is this is not without precedent. It's not like Antifa and Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd riots we saw last summer are unprecedented or anything. Um, so she's probably on to something. I think the Supreme Court is going to be increasingly the boss of all of us. And so that's going to make people care even more about who is president. And that's going to make people view court decisions even more like political decisions, which is fair enough. So that's not very healthy. But in terms of comparing us to any other era, especially you talk about the 30s, you know, or you talk about, you know, the 1800s or, or something like that. The difference is that we're so materially soft now. We've had such material abundance in terms of cheap calories and good places to live and good vehicles and, you know, cheap energy and all that. And now we've got the internet and social media to keep our feeble little brains occupied. So as a result of this, we're very soft. We're soft and we're fat and we're weak. So, you know, it's hard to see a real uprising, a real civil war in a country where people literally can't run to the end of the block. <laughs> yeah. Where people literally can't do five push-ups. Right. So, I mean, there's a physical element to all this. So when people say, hey, you know, things are going to start to get kinetic out there. Well, I'm not so sure. I mean, I think our diets have devolved to the point where this newer generation of carbohydrates is really something different. And I think it makes us more malleable. I think it makes us uh, more desirous of comfort and material warmth. And so, you know, as long as ESPN comes on and the games are on on the weekend and Facebook's working and you know, I mean, I guess inflation could be a linchpin in all this. If all of a sudden gas is five or six or eight bucks everywhere, and all of a sudden even hamburger is 15 bucks a pound or something, you know, that could be a catalyst. But, you know, that's just human nature. We tend, a body at rest tends to stay at rest. And so I think that's, that's probably the safe analysis for the moment. Yeah, I agree with that. It's definitely kind of a brave new world type of environment where people have been like sedated through a lot of like their lifestyles and just like typical indoctrination they receive in public school, corporate media, and even like their workplace too, of all this like weird woke compliance that you really just don't have like the type of virility that's like needed to like launch like a civil war. Yeah. But I think like the cold civil war model, I do believe is probably what the near future is going to look like. Now, shifting gears to more like censorship, this is where also I think you do see a lot of like libertarians kind of drop the ball on it as, as well as a lot of conservatives. It's pretty apparent that there's like mass censorship of any meaningful right wing discourse on social media and even some dissident left discourse here and there, but it's predominantly right wing. And despite a lot of this censorship, you are seeing the corporate media, the corporate press just take a pounding in terms of ratings. People are cutting the cord and just completely tuning out of that medium altogether. So as a result of this, you've seen lots of social media alternatives and different platforms emerge to fill in that vacuum. 
What's your overall view on the viability of alternative media and alt tech as well as competitors to legacy outlets and platforms? Well, for the moment, it's great. I hope that they're not able to crack down that much more. I mean, look at Substack. If somebody like Glenn Greenwald, if he could get 10,000 people around the world, he's got the whole world for his audience. And he's got a lot of name ID, which he, to be fair, worked very hard building up all those years. I think he was at The Guardian. He was at The Intercept. He was a lawyer before that. If he can get 10,000 people to give him five bucks a month on average, 50,000 bucks a month, then he's a real independent journalist. He has the financial means to really, you know, go after things. And that's what we need. Now, that doesn't mean he's uncancelable. You can shut down his payment gateways. You can shut down his PayPal or his credit card processing, you know, there's still ways to get him. Don't get me wrong. And he lives in Brazil, so the Brazilian government could get him. But I mean, that sort of thing for the moment is is very viable. Alex Berenson has a great Substack with all views on the COVID regime. So I love that stuff. I mean, personally, I'm obviously I'm very connected to politics and cultural and social issues. But my wife and I pulled the plug. We don't have cable. We are able through internet TV and, and YouTube to watch pretty much what we want in terms of news. We don't even have Netflix anymore because we thought some of their content was getting hateful. So we dump Netflix. We do have Amazon Prime because it's just part of our shipping, you know, but we certainly don't lack for anything to watch. I think something like a Tucker Carlson show comes on YouTube about half an hour after his actual Fox show is done. So I don't need Fox. I just need... Fox's YouTube channel, I suppose. You know, so things like that are really revolutionary. And, uh, you know, the old media deserves it. Now, when you talk about crackdowns, I do think that they have, they've absolutely destroyed any remaining credibility in their treatment, let's say, over the last year, few years of like the January 6th insurrection and the Charlottesville events of a couple of years ago, which were largely a setup, by the way. And their treatment last summer of the George Floyd riots where, I mean, people literally burned down a police precinct in Minneapolis. I mean, can you imagine if a bunch of white Trumpers yeah. <laughs> burned down a police precinct? We would hear about that. There, there would be a monument in Washington to that day. I mean, there would be a museum. There'd be a Smithsonian Museum dedicated to the day that white, racist, fascist Trumpers burned down a police precinct and under, overwhelmed the rule of law, right? We would hear about that for the next hundred years. That would be, that would be like an article of faith in left-wing churches. Yeah. Um, but no. So obviously this treatment is an absolute farce. They're still being incredibly silent about the, I mean, there's still, still open violence by Antifa all the time. And most journalists simply agree with Antifa. I mean, they may say, well, I wish they didn't use violence or I wish they didn't go so far. But in general, hey, to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs. I mean, that, that's who we're dealing with. So, hey, you know, the beautiful thing here is that the difference between me and my dad or my grandfather is that I can have the clear-eyed vision to view the corporate media as an enemy of freedom and civilization and prosperity, whereas my father and grandfather, that would have been psychologically a very tough thing to do, mm -hmm. right? It's easier for us. The, uh, the veil has been lifted. So in that sense, we're fortunate. Oh, big time. I'm actually pretty optimistic about the prospects for alternative media. And the more they try to crack down, the more it just shows that these people are just like losing a lot of legitimacy. And I think too, like the internet, for whatever faults it 
has it. It's brought a lot of benefits when it comes to just the overall decentralization of information that eventually like the truth will get out in one shape or the other. Now, I find your pre-political background to be interesting because you previously worked at KPMG, correct? That's the rumor. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing that is particularly breathtaking about the current woke psychosis that's just like engulfing this country is just like it's omnipresence, like from like the TV shows you watch to the corporate boardroom. The latter is particularly bizarre because we've seen all these woke companies virtue signal about systemic racism and whatever woke moral panic du jour is popular. Now, has like the big four accounting firms, have any of them been also like infected by this woke madness, specifically like the diversity, inclusion and equity stuff that's pretty prominent? Oh, well, I'm sure that, yes, I'm sure they have been. I mean, these are, the big four accounting firms have 200,000 employees worldwide. So yes, they are, they're not corporations per se, but they are, they have, I'm sure, a healthy amount of corporate woke, woke culture on par with what you would see in any large corporation in America. So that's, you know, and that's interesting because the left has managed to make everything political. Yep. Every aspect of life is politicized. And by doing so, they've created a whole generation who thinks nothing is political, right? To be a young person today who wants to go work at KPMG, for example, certain things about climate change and racism and feminism and LGBT rights and all that, all of that stuff, that's, those aren't even political views to young people. That's just being a good person. That's just being a decent person. So by politicizing everything, they effectively politicize nothing, right? So now you have these young people for whom saying that the earth is in peril isn't a political statement, that that's just somehow a statement of fact, like the sky is blue. And of course, that is a political statement. It's wrong also, in my opinion. My, my political views are that climate change is nonsense. But this is what's so prevalent and what's been so effective. And if you want to understand when people talk about both sides and, oh, but the right does this, it's like, here's the difference, Jose. Fortune 500 companies gave several billion dollars, billion with a B, to the Black Lives Matter organization. We don't know where that money went. We don't know what it's being used on. Who knows? But at any rate, I mean, look, no corporation's giving a billion dollars to the Proud Boys or something, <laughs> right? So this is how it is now. When you ask a woke young person in a corporate setting, do you think we need to take dramatic action for climate change? I mean, that's like one goldfish talking to another and saying, how's the water? Well, it's wet, right? I mean, this is just the environment that the left has successfully created. So you got to hand it to them. They've done a great job. Yeah, the left, to their credit, they know how to basically infiltrate pretty much all sectors of society. They're not just focusing on the election cycle. They're making sure that every nook and cranny rural area and even like this conversation is somehow just micromanaged. They're relentless and and that's something a lot of people on the right have not picked up on. Now, one final question. In light of like the woke insanity taking place in corporate America, how would you recommend libertarian and right-leaning professionals like navigate this whole maze now that like every company practically has like a de 
department devoted to spreading this propaganda and also just subjecting people to like sensitivity training and all all this other forms of like woke programming? Yeah, it's certainly a tough environment if you want to work in a corporate setting. There's no question about it. So I guess the upside is that I think all of these employers are hurting for good people and they're going to have a hard time getting rid of 10 or 20% of their workforce over COVID vaccines, just like they might have a hard time getting rid of 10 or 20% of their workforce over Trumpism or something else. So I would take heart in that. And, you know, and if you're good at your job, you know, you're probably going to have some opportunities regardless of all this. But I certainly understand, especially younger people who want to keep their politics closer to their vest or, or not be on social media or whatever. I mean, I mean, that makes sense. It's a pretty hostile environment. But, you know, there are opportunities to to build our own companies. I mean, I do I do sort of laugh at the breezy, glib libertarian take, you know, build your own Facebook, that sort of thing. But <laughs> on, on a smaller level, there's lots of things you could do. You could, you know, there's lots of people who agree with us. And, you know, at some point you have to say that, yes, it may cost me something to stick out or speak up. That's true. But compared to other times in human history, it's probably not going to cost you nearly as much as it cost people in, you know, 100 years ago or 500 years ago or whatever. I mean, we're so, uh, yeah, there's a cost to fighting back. I don't have an easier glib answer for that because it's, it's true. There is a cost. Well, I think this is a good place to put a bookmark in this conversation. But before we leave, Jeff, what's the Mises Institute up to these days? And where can like my listeners like follow you as well? Well, they should follow us at Mises, M-I-S-E-S on Twitter, definitely. And I'm at Jeff Deist, all one word, J-E-F-F-D-E-I-S-T. So those are good ways to stay in touch with us. And just, you know, you might want to occasionally read one of our articles or you might want to take a much deeper dive on our site at Mises.org. That's really up to you. But I would say our focus is very much today in finding the remnant in the old right tradition of Nock and Henry Hazlitt and Garrett Garrett and H.L. Macon and trying to identify these people out there who are still interested in understanding how civilization and society works and how they work, Jose, is capital accumulation and property rights. That's how they work. We don't need some new blueprint or recipe. There's no new politics. There's no new economics. You know, there are advancements in economic science, but there's no new economics per se. And so we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Mises already laid it out in a book called Liberalism and an earlier book called Nation, State, and Economy, both of which came out in the years between World War I and World War II. So we already understand what works. The problem is, is that the kind of liberalism which Mises laid out and pointed out doesn't have all the tools required to fight back against illiberalism, the kind that we're facing today. So that's the challenge for us. We already know what a proper society should look like. The question is, how do we get there. And I think in today's environment, separation is a more judicious use of our scarce time and resources than persuasion. A lot of people in this country, probably tens of millions, hundreds of millions in this people in this country, flat out believe crazy, illiberal things. There's no other way to say it. They think it's A-OK to nationalize whole industries, for example. So yeah, you can try to pick those people off one at a time and convert them to your way of thinking. You know, or you could try to start figuring out how we can separate ourselves a bit. And so I, I do admire some of what's happening with the, with the Santas in Florida. I do admire to an extent the Free State Project and efforts in New Hampshire 
And, you know, I, what I really admire is that people who are willing to pick up and move with their feet from places like California, even though they've got a job or a mortgage or a bunch of kids or, or family and ties, you know, that's a, a courageous thing to do. And uh, that's what's going to have to happen in America. We need to just say we shouldn't have to think about or worry about what happens, let's say, in California, my home state, by the way, any more than I think about or worry about what happens in France. If I, if I heard tomorrow that France had some new abortion law, which allowed abortion very late in the third trimester or whatever, I might say, hmm, you know, but it wouldn't keep me up at night or it wouldn't really animate me one way or the other because France is a sovereign country. So if, if people in New York and California and Texas and Florida sort of viewed each other more that way, and I don't, you know, with respect, I don't, I don't want to influence French abortion laws. I want to respect their sovereignty. And by the same token, why do I necessarily want to impose my thoughts or views on abortion in California? Why should people in California have to wake up tomorrow worried about who is going to be the next senator from my now adopted state of Alabama? That seems like kind of a crazy system, but it's, it's the one we've got. So again, this, this soft secession, which really started to accelerate during COVID, is a beautiful thing. And I'll leave you with this, Jose, or your listeners. United Van Lines, who are the moving people, they're not some think tank. They're a moving company. <laughs> so if you Google United Van Lines Moving Survey 2020, they've got a great interactive map of the United States, and it'll show you exactly where everybody's going to and from with their United Van Line moving trucks. So very interesting stuff. Well put, Jeff. Thank you again for coming on. You always bring a unique perspective and silver lining to a lot of like the problems we face. And I think that'll do it for today. To all my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to El Nino Speaks. El Nino has spoken. <laughs>